listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. with a friend of mine recently about um, difficult people and how they can they can kind of throw us which is really what they're meant to do difficult people are put into our experience so that we can be thrown and then we get to see how the practice has carried us um, and if it still can carry us in a way that's constructive in a way that's helpful um, difficult people register um, at the level of ego. Okay, so if push were to come to shove, I mean, I think try to imagine imagine a person you've had a, either a difficult exchange with, or you have a difficult uh, time dealing with them, or have in the past and no longer, whatever. And if you were to look at that that situation, what you have is not so much that they are a bad person, but their unconsciousness is making your ability to communicate and commingle with them a deep and sometimes you might even say a dark challenge. So the way we meet darkness is not with more darkness. It's with light. And Boy, you can sure get into um, harm's way if you start telling people who feel really angry or really attached around a particular issue that they just need to be more loving. That's you're going to get the Zen slap at that point. Um, you're going to get you're going to you want to see someone like light up their unconsciousness. You you share with them that they need to be more loving when they're angry. Just the, it's at, it'll, it'll never be heard, ever. It can't. There's. It's indigestible to that to uh, uh, a clinger, non-clinging. They cannot handle it. So, one of the things that we can we can do when we run into somebody who's clinging to a particular view, be it uh, political, be it personal, be it social, be it uh, you know whatever. If someone is really attaching to a particular view, the way we can best meet that is to be non-attached to their attachment. Okay? If we meet their attachment with more attachment, all we do is create more suffering. We create the war. Um, or at least we become part of it. Now this is, this is difficult, especially for somebody who has kind of an activist heart or somebody who believes in their cells, like I do, for instance, that justice is a very important thing, social and otherwise. It's a very important thing that we, 
meet up with uh, what is just and fair in the world and stick up for people who can't stick up for themselves, give voice for people who don't have the ability to speak up for themselves on the one hand. On the other hand, you better make sure that the voice that you're using doesn't just reflect your own heart and you're foisting your voice on theirs as theirs. This makes sense? In other words, you know, you're trying to stick up for the voiceless and you're articulating something that they don't even buy. It's very common for that to happen. So we need to be very, very careful. Take, and when I say careful, I'm with great care that we meet unconsciousness with greater consciousness. So going back, I mean, the cure to darkness is not more darkness. And while the most contagious thing on the planet is somebody's unconsciousness, the antidote or the remedy for that kind of ailment is to sit still in the moment. Be still in the moment. I've shared this with you before, but uh, I, used to, I used to tutor kids in SAT preparatory classes. And I would always say, you know, you know, right before the test, the test is going to be like on a Saturday, I'm giving them their last pep talk kind of on a Thursday night. It's like, okay, now, Saturday morning, you don't have two, you have four pencils. Why four? You'll never run out. You're not going to blow through four pencils, you know? You, you stick one, snap one, you're going to have another one right there. Okay, so that, have your calculator ready to go the night before with those four pencils. Make sure that you have something to eat and you get up with plenty of time. It's not a good idea to bargain for that. I mean, the worst invention on the planet, the snooze alarm, you know, you hit the thing, like those nine minutes are somehow going to give you like the extra sustenance to offset fatigue for the rest of the day. It's not, okay? But nonetheless, it's kind of a seductive, it goes off and you're like, oh <laughs> uh, yeah, okay, well, I'll just shower quickly. And then you hit it again, I won't bathe. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, I won't eat. I'll speed on my way to work. You know, you do the, the bargaining that goes on. Well, I would tell these kids, you know, get up early, make sure you're awake when you're there, and make sure if there is someone who is in that place of nervousness or unconsciousness, get away. Leave. Just, oh, excuse me, gotta go. Get away. Because that's gonna, that's gonna generate cortisol. It's gonna put you in a place where your ability to retrieve information is, is, is uh, lessened. This is all research-based. Just get away. And we can't always do that in our lives. We can't just get away from the person who is unconscious, who is, who is nervous, who is, I mean, do your best. It's like, that's my nightmare as a, a semi-public figure. Um, is getting into conversations with people at Trader Joe's or at Whole Foods, and after, you know, two or three minutes, it's like, you know, must get oxygen, you know, uh, gotta go. Oh, oh, hey, gotta go floss my cat. <laughs> no, I, uh, you have to. I think you have to have some type of uh, uh, base of skill there to make sure that you can extricate yourself from a place of unconsciousness, but do so consciously. Otherwise you can hurt 
you can hurt a person. You don't want to do that either. Definitely okay to set limits and definitely okay to make sure that you're heard and speaking in a way, as we say in the uh, Pali, the old, old language, we'd say upaya, using a skillful means to extricate yourself from a certain situation is really a powerful thing. And it spontaneously, are, it, it, you'll see that the more we still our bodies and minds, the more we can actually apply this in our day to day. The more we can actually give this to the person who, for instance, might be challenging for us, uh, the situation that might be challenging, the group of people that might be challenging for us. And we can meet it with a different kind of presence. And if we can do it with one person, we can do it with one person, we can do it with a group. It's a little bit more challenging, but it's just a collectivized version of the same egoic attachment. So we meet it with the same type of grace, the same type of ease and openness. We don't attach to their attachment. I'll share with you the one of the funnier moments uh, I've had in the last few weeks. I was sitting with just, just my, my younger daughter, and we were we were watching, going through some of the stuff that on uh, my DVR, you know, I've got some shows and so forth on National Geographic, Mythbusters, things like that, that she, she's just a sponge. And there was, she, Daddy, what's, what's SNL? They go, oh, it's Saturday Night Live. She goes, is it funny? And I went, let's see. <laughs> just keep my fingers crossed that, that whatever I had on there was going to be something that a seven-year-old would find somewhat funny and I would find appropriate for the seven-year-old if she finds it funny. And so I turned it on. It was last week's and the, the cold open, which I think in the last two or three seasons, the show has become transcendently good most of the time. And who comes on but Melissa McCarthy dressed as Sean Spicer, the press secretary. And if you haven't seen this, Google it on YouTube. It was absolutely hilarious. And Maeve started to have one of those laugh attacks that when, when a little kid had, like it's authentic and her body was shaking. And, and I'm going, I'm going why, is, why is this so funny? And she goes, oh, she looks just like him. <laughs> what? And she goes, yeah, he's in charge of the press. <laughs> and I'm like, and she goes, yeah, grandma showed, grandma showed him to us. She thinks he's an idiot. <laughs> so, while I totally agree, I don't necessarily agree with toxifying the uh, young mind, although I totally agree with the assessment and, you know, just, quite frankly, just uh, yeah, my, uh, my, my uh, former mother-in-law, bless her heart, man, she is, man, she is at war right now in the most righteous way imaginable and hats off to her, you know, she can do whatever she wants. And the fact that my kids have become utterly and completely politicized in this process, I think is actually quite a gift, you know? No, I know I'm going to eat those words. Okay, I know I will eat those words later on. However, um, the idea that that somehow satire or someone else's um, unconsciousness could be uh, parodied in a way that could still appeal to the seven-year-old sense of humor, I thought was quite remarkable. 
And we then had a discussion about what it means to oppose something you disagree with as opposed, as in, in opposition to being caught by it. And uh, that proved to be only partially uh, uh, useful in terms of you know, being a conversation because then she immediately wanted to watch uh, you know, something about uh, uh, mandrels but, uh, uh, or monkeys or whatever. But still, it was, it was kind of one of those flash moments that you get, you, know, you only get like two minutes with the kid and then they go like, ping, somewhere else. But it was, it, was, uh, it, was, it was kind of interesting. I thought it applied to me as well and any of us as we start seeing things, things that, that might generate darkness. There is light there. There is light also being offered. Even if it's in the form of a court jester, like uh, Melissa McCarthy in that particular scenario. And by the way, she, I'm guaranteeing you she will be reprising that role constantly, just like Alec Baldwin now has a major career on television. Um, <laughs> not that he wasn't doing okay before, but I, I think this, there's a certain bit of silly and fun that can be had in the middle of what we might perceive to be dark and scary. It's important that we don't get dark and scary in our opposition or in, if we are in favor of a particular set of policies or whatever. Um, that's how we can generate a kind of conscious activism as we meet the world. That's how we can, what I keep hearing people talking about, that this most recent scenario <coughs> has inspired or reinvigorated a sense of Boy, we sure got complacent. Yes, we did. It is a full contact sport. At least it's participatory, a democracy. And it doesn't matter whether you're left or right. It really doesn't. It matters that you can engage in a way that allows for understanding, dialogue, and then you know, particip a participatory move towards progress, towards justice, towards helping each other. So, as we kind of sit tonight, can we literally embody this peace? Can we embody, or uh, we, we, we sometimes look in, in uh, um, I guess it's Arabic, hal, H-A-L, is um, uh, a gift, and then um, forget the other one that is earned. I forget the, the, the term in Arabic, but in, in Islam, uh, we can look at uh, how there's this gift that's given to us as we reach moments of insight, and then coalescing those moments of insight into our bodies, or embodying that insight, then becomes something that's earned. And we earn that when we sit still. We earn that when we meditate. Let's do some earning. Let's earn the gift of, of insight. Let's earn and embody the, uh, the, the peace that's given to us in every moment. We just begin to be peace. as we begin to recognize the quiet of the room. 
knowing that each person in here has their own torture, their own struggles, their own gifts, their own joy, knowing that outside this zendo of ours, people are going through their lives some in happiness, some in deep sorrow, some healthy, some very sick. Some concerned about past grievances, some concerned about future potentials. We're all in this together. We're all sharing this life and death experience. We all have an opportunity in every moment to uncover the peace that keeps calling us. Listen. idea of bringing light into darkness. It's, uh, I think, at the core of all sorts of all sorts of spiritual spiritual teachings, and it's analogous to a really cool question that kind of popped yes yesterday, <laughs> last week. They all blend together, folks. Uh, last week. Uh, when it was well, so what's the what's the what's the shift that occurs um, at at an awakening experience? And I kind of went through kind of a long and involved, you know, process-oriented response. And and I think that that there's been some really cool stuff written on it, and also a whole bunch of stuff not written on it. And I think that's because. The minute you kind of say, well, here's what it's like, is the minute everybody more or less kind of coalesces their, their own thoughts around the thinking that was conveyed to them. In other words, words can get in the way. Words can define something that's really, quite honestly, undefinable. And one of the things I've always liked in, in Western philosophy is uh, Western philosophers are always about defining it until this guy named Ludwig von Wittgenstein came along and said, you know, basically, there's some things you just can't talk about. Hmm. You know, that we can create all these thought patterns and so forth, we can create these words that point to ideas, we can share ideas, but really, we're not sure if I, for instance, always, if I close my eyes and I think of the color blue, and finally, my friend thinks of the color blue as well. Who's to say that her version of blue is the same as mine? She could be seeing red. 
my version of red at least, and be calling it blue and has done so her entire life. So it's very, it's very difficult to come up with this idea that we can all share an experience, that we can label it, categorize it, and compartmentalize it, and assume it's the same. So oftentimes the best thing, and what Zen often teaches us, is shut up already. Again, suddenly I go Yiddish. <laughs> shut up already. Oi. The, 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 the point is valid, though, that at awakening, we suddenly, it's not so much that we are, you know, floating. Um, and I know that just about everybody, you don't arrive at this work unless you've had some type of insight, whether it's drug-induced or not. You usually show up to a zendo or you show up to deep spiritual work because of something that made you go, hmm, hmm, hmm. Okay, let's, let's uncover a little bit more of this. When you no longer have anything to hide behind, you're in that place of readiness. When you're no longer interested in hiding behind anything, you're ready. When you're no longer, um, we sometimes say, we're no longer seduced by our dreams, Dreams play a very, very uh, active role in, speaking of Western, of what it means to be, uh, you know, an American. <coughs> or American. Um, and when the seduction of those dreams kind of starts to fall away, we're ready. I don't know if we have any developmental psychologists in the room, but it's really interesting what happens in the 20s. You know, as, as adults mature, uh, Bob Keegan out of Harvard's written some really cool stuff on this. Uh, of course, Eric Erickson, some of these great developmental psychologists have talked about it. But man, the 20s is when you get your ass kicked. And the seduction of dreams begins to take on an entirely different, different meaning. And what we've noticed is that being in your 20s today is way different than being in your 20s in 1967 that there has been some real real interesting shifts and for those of you who have had boomerang kids you know that they leave for college and that they come back right after college <laughs> this wasn't the case for lots of boomers but uh, gen x and uh and the millennials by the way the millennials are just going to move home and stay until you croak and then take over the house. That's, yeah. We've determined that to be the case. Kidding aside, we, we no longer have these dreams to hide behind. We uh, were deprived of uh, the shelter that we've always known in our belief structures. Awakening means that we're no longer seduced by dreams and we no longer really have a lot to stand on. I know I'm really pitching it here. This is sounding really seductive, I'm sure. Really, well, we don't want some of that. You can't hide. You have to face everything. You cannot avoid squat when we start to weave kind of awakening in to who and what it is that we are. 
And this happens in a preparatory sense, at least, in kind of a step-by-step -step fashion. Sometimes surges forward and slops back and, and so forth. But the idea, in the Zen school at least, that it's a sudden enlightenment, I think, as I've said before, is a real misnomer. You prepare for it to happen. And then when it does happen, stuff can coalesce. So, in fact, it's always slow. It's always a slow, steady, you know, step-by-step -step process that begins to unfold in us. Um, we're forced, when this happens, into a kind of, uh, we become raw uh, in, some, in some ways, but not necessarily raw in, in a bad way. It's just we're kind of raw as in naked. We're, we've, we don't have any, we're, we, we are literally undefended from the world and we need it all the time. But there is a certain kind of quiet strength that comes with that, the ability to meet the world all the time. And every one of you in this room, myself included, can consider how it is that we meet the world all the time. Do we do it in a way that uh, inspires peace in self and other, inspires grace in self and other? Are we combative? Are we hippie-esque, kumbaya? Both of which can be extremes of the same disease of egocentrism. Can we find that middle space where we can meet the world always, as it is? So it's not an experience awakening. It's not an experience. It's not necessarily um, it's not a state. It's a way of meeting the world. And just because you pop doesn't mean you're fully cooked ever. Makwam, that's what it's called. Embodiment, or earned. Hal, gift, makwam, earned in Arabic. Sorry. <laughs> Shit happens, man. You're just <laughs> going along, you remember stuff. You know what I'm finding now? It's really interesting. At uh, 52 years old, that I never experienced at 42 years old, I'll be talking about something and then have no idea the point I was trying to make. <laughs> you know? I'll be going along, yeah. And then, remember, and it was all supposed to lead somewhere because about six sentences ago, I was going to take. No idea. Is that normal, folks? Yes. Okay, good. Cheers. <laughs> it might be the gin. <laughs> so, I think there's a uh, there's kind of an unpacking that happens here, and an integration that happens here that I kind of wanted to talk about. And I know that everyone's really excited because I brought out the easel. <laughs> so that means suddenly I go professorial on all you guys and throw a little Buddhism at you. Um, uh, I hope it doesn't torture you too much, but I did want to, I did want to kind of, kind of explain kind of this, this, uh, how this work can kind of just a map at least as to how this this work kind of can uh, uh, burst through us. And. To some of you, you may have, you, you already have probably an idea, and to others, this may be new. But it really, um, it's something that doesn't, it doesn't happen overnight. 
It, it's, it's something that we're continually stabilizing more and more and more. And one of my, uh, you know, uh, heroes in this process was a guy named Robert Eakin. And Robert Eakin Roshi, um, controversial in some, in some respects, um, uh, but, but I think really what he gave to the Americanized version of Zen was pretty, pretty powerful. He said, the master spends a lifetime unpacking uh, these levels, or his word was bodies, but I'll explain it in a minute. These, these bodies, until there is nothing left, and even Bodhidharma's smile disappears, a step beyond the Cheshire Cat. In other words, there's nothing left. And you know, in Lewis Carroll's Alice, Alice in Wonderland, through the looking glass, that the Cheshire Cat just kind of, you know how he fades, and all that's left is this, this smile? Um, I never realized how potent that image was to me as a kid until uh, it was the name I was given, the Dharma name that I was given. So when you ordain, when I went through lay ordination with my teacher, what the, the way they do it is they give you a name of who you are, what's most prominent in you, and then what you give. So what you are and what you give. And so you've, you've really blown it if, and you can tell by the name your teacher gives you, if for instance like your name is something like, uh, really tries hard, <laughs> wish they'd leave, <laughs> you know. Uh, sincere effort reminds me of a log floating down a river, you know, whatever. <laughs> Mine, on the other hand, I got really lucky, um, and it's probably because my teacher was in a good mood because I gave him, I think, hives on most days. But uh, it was it was uh, miraculous wisdom, Buddha smile, or he said you could translate that to uh, and it's myo e butu show, miraculous wisdom, infinite smile. And so that's kind of the, that's how the, you know, we kind of got our name. Um, but this idea, the, the infinite smile, and I remember as a kid seeing the Cheshire Cat just fade, you know, just fade away. And how that nothingness, the no self, all that's left is just this, the grace of this smile. If you think about when you're really smiling, when you're really smiling, and something really, really causes the, uh, the, the beautiful crease in your face. It's usually a sign of deep peace, you know. So I wanted to kind of just show how this, how this kind of unfolds, and we'll do it with the. Uh, with the technical difficulties and all, um, I would say that one of the ways that this is helpful, to me at least, is as we begin to look at. We talked about activism a great deal since the election. What does that look like? And what do you not want it to look like? You don't want it to look like darkness inspiring darkness. You want it to look like us bringing the light, whoever it is, um, who, and whoever it is in power. I'm not, I'm not going to pick a side here, although you guys all know I think Donald Trump is a total asshole. But anyway, <laughs> the, did I say that out loud? I did. OK. Oops. Um, not that I'm attached, but what a dick. Anyway, so. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think that, that was for you. Anna, go. Go team. All the way up to 11. 
what, what we look at in developmental psych, okay, and so much of this work really is about how we develop psychologically. We start here with the eye, okay? And in Buddhism, what we're looking to do is really make sure that we study that. That we really look to see what that eye, what that eye means. And the eye is what attaches. So, for instance, as, as an example here, crude as it may have been, my uh, 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 verbalization of how I feel about Donald Trump, okay, is that's right in this kind of the, um, at, at the crux of, of what it is that we're doing. Because, quite frankly, for me to say, I, I think Donald Trump is X, Y, or Z, I'm basically, I'm, I'm talking about the qualities in me I don't like. Okay? All right? The Trumpian qualities that I have when I go brittle, okay? Or when I blame, or when I tweet continually, uh, <laughs> or wh whatever, whatever the quality might be, okay? The arrogance, or whatever. Things on display to one degree or another in any of us, okay? We then have this one, which is the I plus you, or me and you, okay? The I plus, plus you is us, okay? Like, right? Uh -huh. You know, whatever, it's us, okay? This, this gets really interesting because now we've developed an association with another person or persons that creates a collectivization of this. So while we may start here, okay, we can then go to this very next level real easily. In fact, this is a very natural thing for us to do as we grow, is to go into that next level from the egocentrism, if you will, into sociocentrism. Okay? Does this make sense? So here it gets kind of cool. Because from here, and I'm going to fall off the map here, we go, we have ego, tribal, or excuse me, egocentrism, sociocentrism, I, I plus you. And then where, where we can go with this is all of us. This is hard. Most people don't get there. Okay? Most people stop here. Right? They can't make it over. And this, this is, I describe it kind of as a, almost like a, uh, it's a vortex that sucks people up once they become more and more still. It's a very natural thing to be shocked out of your egocentrism into the us. Most obvious uh, example of this is family. You, you fall in love, you get married, you have a kid. Boom! Okay, now one of the things about when we go into that space is that it's very easy for us to stop here because our life becomes incredibly myopic in terms of how we're going to care deeply for the I plus U's, whoever they are, okay? It's, like I said, rare for us to begin to develop a sense of everyone else unless something jars that loose. And it's not terribly natural, OK? 
Okay? Now you could say, well, Vietnam taught us that. Well, Vietnam, to use that as an example for, for boomers, was something that kicked people, you're definitely right, out of this on the one hand because they said, wait, this isn't right. Racism isn't right. Voting, everybody should be allowed to vote, right? So you had all these issues that inspired this move, but guess what? They also stayed pretty much locked here because it was us against the squares or us against them or these people in power are evil. And so you can stay locked in this sociocentric as opposed to a world-centric view. You might even have world-centric tendencies, but you fight it in a sociocentric way. Or, case in point, political structures oftentimes will, will anchor here in sociocentrism, but depending who's in power, they might have an orientation that is pretty, pretty contracted. Okay? So how is it, because ego-centrism cannot fathom global centrism as a philosophy. It can, however, egocentrism, can see it through sociocentric eyes as long as it involves money. Right? So in other words, if we can profit from this, we can get there, but we really live here. All right? So it's as if it's going to, uh-huh, 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 but the center of gravity is here. It's very rare unless there is a total surrender that we can go into this uh, deeper, deeper opening, okay? And this is, this is all of us. This is the all, okay? That's where it gets freaky because to go into the all, it is inherently spiritual. It is inherently kind of this surrendered openness to all. Not just all of us, but all the animals, all the air. So it becomes, right, all things. Okay? And believe it or not, we call this cosmocentric, with a K, because in Greece, cosmocentrism was external and internal. Cosmo, the sea, is just outside like a cosmologist just looking at the stars, okay? Uh, in, in the cosmos, we look at it in Greek terms, at least it goes in as well as out. Because the infinite is just that. Um, I don't know if you guys read the uh, retreat when Lenny um, talked about the arrow. He says, it's like every time I shoot an arrow, it shoots at me too. It's like, yes, yes, exactly, okay? So there are names for this, and as uh, Aiken Roshi was talking about the bodies, there are bodies uh, uh, or, or labels for this level of development. The I, the, the, the me and you, or I, let's just call it me. Me and you, that was like an M, okay. The me and you, the I, the me and you, the all of us. Egocentric, sociocentric. World-centric, cosmocentric. We have in the spiritual terms, we call this the gross, gross awareness. If you have a spiritual experience, it's at the gross level. It means uh, 
uh, the best example I can think of was um, uh, my ex. She talked to me about after both um, her, of the birth of our kids. She said it was in the, the gross realm. In other words, it happened in the world hyper-conscious, okay? But as it was, it, was, it was in the real world, and there's nothing that brings uh, you to reality like great pain, even if it's the divine knives of childbirth. It brings you right there. And she was right that, man, I was right there with her, you know? Um, clearly the superior sex, but that's another story. Okay, so that's gross realm, okay? We then, uh, we call this actually, the next level we call it subtle. And I call it the subtle realm because this is where dreams happen. It's in here. So instead of it being a bodily experience, it's now a mystical experience, okay? Um, visions. Satori itself, the awakening experience itself, is on this, this level, okay? And uh, so what we call this the Sambhogakaya. We call this one the Nirmanakaya. Here, the gross realm. Nobody's gonna, <coughs> we're not going to have a quiz, don't worry. Nirmanakaya, Sambhogakaya is here at the level of mind, okay? Body, mind. And then you get into this, the, uh, I guess, how did I? Causal level. I know you can see all this beautifully. Yeah. Uh, the causal level. Okay. Causal level is up here. Okay. We call that dharmakaya. And the dharmakaya, it, the experience, as Aitken Roshi was talking about, these bodies. Kaya means body. So, nirmanakaya, sambhogakaya, dharmakaya. Everything falls away. In other words, it's it's not that you're necessarily a body or a mind. It's that you have kind of gone through these stages, this stair step, and you're kind of at this point of, ah. So you're no longer identifying with this body that you have. You're no longer identifying with this mind that you have. But you can use this mind and use this body. So the relationship fundamentally shifts at this level. Okay? And then, for those of you you're interested, we call it... Uh, my favorite word, spirit, spirit itself, okay, um, the cool thing about this level is instead of being at some experiential bliss state, which is the sign of this, the causal level, not a vision, but a, oh my God, nothing's left of me, and the felt sense of that is an unmistakably rich, uh, 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 almost like a, a high, okay? Oftentimes people can experience this level early on in their meditative practice and then fall back into this space here and be thinking, God, how am I ever gonna get that again? It's like a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. You talk to people who use heroin and usually second or third time, it's one of the most amazing things they've ever had in their lives. And then the next 25 years, they keep trying to get there and they can't, right? Well, what happens here is you actually burst through it. 
when you get into this level, the thing with spirit is spirit is equal at all these levels. Instead of it being a nirmanakaya, fancy word, sambhogakaya, fancier word, or or dharmakaya, now we're into the, ready for this, the svabhavikakaya, which means equally present at all levels. Okay? And so to think of this in terms of my favorite metaphor, at least in this regard, is to look, think of the ocean. Okay? The gross level, man. So imagine this thing being upside down. Okay? The gross level, storms. Okay? Sub-level, go down 30 feet. You're still going to feel motion, but it is not going to be the same as being on the surface. Okay? Causal level, get way down there, right near the bottom. It's still, it's quiet. But it's always, at every level, wet. Always water. Okay? And so what happens is, is we start to create subtler and subtler levels of this practice because we're sitting still, because we're you know, reading books or listening to Dharma talks or actually practicing the work. We start carrying ourselves to this, this uh, uh, range of not only sensations and so forth, but this range of experience. We start to recognize, my God, we... We can actually start living here, but we recognize the center of gravity of each of these lower levels. If we're at cosmocentric, we start getting a real clear sense because we're really kind of basking in the openness that spirit is everywhere. We can then recognize somebody who's world-centric, somebody who is socio-bound by sociocentrism, and somebody who's deeply egocentric, and we can meet them where they are. We're not interested in lifting anybody up as much as we are giving them the gift of our own consciousness to inspire their own work. We don't have to teach them anything. We just have to be there. We have to be open for ourselves and everybody else. So if you begin to look at the, you know, kind of how our, how our logo, how our, our logo looks, it is a map Up here is where the integration actually occurs. So all of it meets here whenever we're together. Only a Buddha with a Buddha achieves enlightenment. With, with, always with. It's not solo. Okay? Yet, solitude is necessary for this to unfold. It also looks like a sitter. You know? So I just wanted to share that. I know I've talked about this before. Sometimes it's good for a little refresher just to give you an idea that, that this work of moving from level to level to level to level, it doesn't always stick. It's something that's always evolving in each of us. And my hope is that within each of you, you can begin to kind of understand a little bit of how this, how this, mapping, this mapping works, that you can recognize that no matter what, it's all spirit in action, always. Always, okay? And we tend to get locked in our own egocentrism or our own sociocentrism. If only they could be more like us. Yeah. You know? Mm -hmm. If only he could quit being such a... Come on. You know? 
And so we can begin to kind of develop, a, a, I think, a, a greater appreciation for where everybody is at whatever level they are. Can we speak to them in a way that can be heard, that they can hear? And uh, boy, that's a trick, as many of you know. Yes. So, so I do too. I think it's actually very different from Erickson. Okay. And let me tell you why. Erickson, I think, is he's really cool in that he goes past the idea that it's all by five. You know, the mm -hmm. Freudian sense that by age five, we're done. You know, Erickson takes it into, I think, some really cool, like the issue of competence or the issue of love. You know, all that stuff's really, really good. But I think what this does is it blows through. Where I mean, Erickson does a great job of hitting egocentrism and sociocentrism, mm -hmm. but his idea of projects and so forth might hit world, they might hit cosmocentric and so forth, but they don't map for it. So this isn't, it's not trying to, to map human development as much as it is the potential to burst in spiritual terms. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. How we might grow mm -hmm. in spiritual or in in. In, in terms of consciousness. Yeah, I see potential. Yeah, and I, I don't think this is so basic. You know, it's so, you know, um, uh, uh, I'm painting with such broad strokes here that it's easy to, I think we could, we could also take the, the flip of this and, and, and shred it if we wanted to. But I think, I think it's, it does a fairly good job of just mapping out where we, how we get to where we are, what, what, what we're ultimately looking for, which is peace. And peace is that spirit. But it, guess what? It's also, <laughs> also at every level. Peace is at every step. Yeah. Sure. Did I see Mark? Yeah. You, you finally learned that? Yeah, it took Good. a long time. Uh, <laughs> I remember taking methadone, mm -hmm. and I relate to the all. That experience I had that day, everything made sense. Uh, my best friend could have fallen over dead, I guess. Mm -hmm. makes sense. Yeah. And it just, it was that feeling of being with, with everything. Right. Now the next, next day was very depressing. Mm -hmm. It was coming down, I didn't have shit. Uh -huh. What's going on there? Well, mescaline... I've never, I've never taken mescaline, but I know that, that the, the, the high of it, the, the unity consciousness that you might get at that level of spirit or cosmocentrism is particularly profound. Um, uh, and, but what is it showing us? Any, any acid, uh, LSD, any hallucinogen that, that pushes that, that reminds us, uh, there's a huge body of research right now that says the whole reason our frontal lobe developed was because people were eating uh, uh, hallucinogenic mushrooms. Really? It's pretty profound. And if you think about it, LSD comes from a, the rye seed. It's a bacteria that grows on rye seeds. So who knows what Moses had in his little, you know, his unle the unleavened experience of a lifetime is what he had, you know. Um, uh, 
so, so you know, there are all sorts of reasons to, to, for us to assume that this is not really ill spent, you know. Um, but what it does is it pops and it gets us a reminder, okay, and then pulls us back down. And where's that reminder happening? It's happening at the subtle level. It's happening here, even though we're getting a sense of what's up there, so to speak. So it's a mind-body experience, and we mistake the experience for what the experience is pointing to. So the drugs oftentimes will kind of give us a little jump start to say, hey, look what's out there. But it's really up to us to do it sans drugs for us to uncover what it really can, how we can embody that experience. I hope that makes sense. And this isn't, a, I'm not you know, trying to sound like, you know, don't do drugs or just say no or whatever. I'm saying that the drugs themselves or the experience themselves, the Satori itself is merely an experience. It's a state. It's not yet integrated into being a trait which is the huge step. Can you take the state and turn it into a trait? And the, the gift is that uh, uh, drug experimentation often gives people a sense of, oh, oh my God, it was amazing because it showed me this. Mm -hmm. Now, if that can then inspire an orientation of one's life around that, that's pretty cool. If on the other hand, as with most people, it's just kind of a goose and go phenomenon, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's, you know, it falls flat. Are people that are in that state all the time? Well, they, so, yeah, but we call them psychotic. <laughs> That's not enlightened. The enlightened isn't somebody who's just, you know, in a, in a bliss state. <laughs> There's this, so I'm in, I'm in Thailand at this particular monastery, and I'm, I'm meditating, the big 10-day meditation thing, and there's this guy who, like, you know, day three, he was freaking everybody out because he just walked around kind of like, <laughs> he had this horrible, horrible look on his face, and all these judgments were coming up. I know not just in me, but in other people. It's like, okay, that's, that guy's looking creepy, or you know, whatever. And then, you know, at, as the as the final bell rang, he's like, "All right, uh, I, anybody else going down to uh, uh, Phuket? I got to get a bus. Anybody want to, you know?" So it was almost like this affectation, you know, and and I think I think people mistake. Uh, state experiences for awakening. It's not. It's not the same thing. Awakening is an integration of state into awareness. So that's really the, the heavy lifting is not having the insight. The Satori is just the tease, right? So based on kind of what we talked about last week, the Satori puts us at a subtle level experience Okay, and that subtle level experience only becomes causal when we practice letting go of the idea or the imagery or whatever. It's just imagery. It's just or just an experience. You know, we let go of that, but try to live close to the truth that it showed us, and then that becomes this causal move that begins to kind of seep into ourselves. And then we start recognizing, holy smokes, it's always already here, spirit. There's nothing that is not spirit. It's all infinity at play, always. Right? 
hope that kind of makes a little bit of sense. It's getting there. No, it's getting there. Well, that's a lot of information. Yeah, just let it go. Let it go. Let it go. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the one word that that you've used and I starting to hear it a little bit is the practice. The practice to open that awareness to let go. Uh-huh. And because, uh, I mean, this morning when I was sitting, I was really going, what am I really practicing right now? Yeah. And, uh, and or when I started to sit down, and then I just sat down and I let go. But I was, uh, you know, if you have a goal, then you're not there. And that's a struggle. So really, I'm not having a goal, I'm trying to be. And, there you go. And, uh, but, you know. So wait, wait, wait. I'm looking at your pattern and going. If you're just trying to be, mm-hmm. guess just what? trying to be. If you're just trying to be, then what you've done is you've opened the door for spirit mm-hmm. to come in through and rearrange all the furniture. So, so that's exactly right. Just so what you, if you ask yourself, like, what am I really practicing? I'm practicing sitting still. And then it can evolve into there is a practice happening of sitting still. And then it becomes sitting still. There's no subject, it's just this verb, sitting. And the adverb still. You're sitting stilly, right? And so, so what happens then is it's just, just sitting. And then eventually you just leave. Yeah, you just leave exactly. <laughs> exactly. You just, you just, it's just sitting. There's no personality there. There's no. Uh, it's just thunk. And that's it. And then when you're not sitting, it's the bell ringing, and then it's the breakfast making, and then it's the car. Well, in your case, your car drives itself, which is kind of cool. So it's the car driving, <laughs> right? You, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's, we, we're all there for our life every single minute. We're not avoiding anything. We're showing up for everything as a conscious manifestation of spirit at every level. I now drop the mic. Thank you for